So we just finished a year-long study of the book of Acts, which begins with the words, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. That former book is the gospel account of Luke, also addressed to Theophilus, whose name means lover of God. So the gospel account of Luke and the book of Acts is written by the same person, Luke, in which he writes down for Theophilus and for all of us who are a lover of God, what Jesus did and taught, and then how those things that Jesus did and taught went out into the whole world by the ministry of the early church with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this Advent season, we're going to walk through the opening chapters of the gospel account of Luke to look at some of the characters of Christmas. Well, last year we looked at the characters of Christmas. We looked at the major characters of Christmas, Joseph and Mary and the shepherds and angels. This year, we're going to look at the minor characters of Christmas, the lesser known characters, the ones that don't make the nativity scene or the Christmas pageants. We often feel like minor characters in the activities of the world. And the fact is, we really are minor characters, and that's a good thing. We're not glory hounds. We want all glory to go to God. We want to be minor characters, to be less that God would be more. This morning, we will see that happen with Zechariah. Before we read the accounts of him, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord God, speak to us by your word. Remind us of who you are and remind us of whose we are. To know that we are the one to whom you came and that you are Emmanuel, God with us. Be with us now that your spirit would be present, bearing witness to the reading and preaching of your word. And so as always, we pray for the preacher, knowing that he is not worthy, but by your grace, he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. The account of Zechariah comes right at the beginning of uh, the gospel account of Luke. It comes in two parts, and so we're going to look at the first 25 verses first, and then uh, later we'll read the second part of Zechariah's song. But listen first to the account of Zechariah, beginning at Luke 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything, From the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly but they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood 
to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. And the angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you'll be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Well, the first four verses of Luke is in the form of the classical Greek introduction in which he tells us that he has done extensive research. He recognizes the importance of, of what he is doing. He's going to write about the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and only the best work is acceptable for this effort. And Luke is doing his own research on this. He doesn't just take someone else's word for it. He looks into all the accounts given by many different eyewitnesses to determine the truth of what really happened. And that quickly takes us to verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea. The history leading up to the birth of Christ is utterly fascinating. And as I studied this, I realized, you know, I don't know that I've ever heard a good sermon on the events leading up to the reign of King Herod. And you're not going to hear one this morning. (laughs) It really is, though, important to understand the historical context, especially because Luke the historian is attempting to give us historical context. We don't have time to do that because we're going to focus on Zechariah, but here is the history of the world, the history leading up to the birth of Christ in 60 seconds. Ready? You got the creation and fall with Adam and Eve, the flood and Noah, and his descendants, the Tower of Babel, and then we get the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who becomes Israel around 2000 BC, and then the sons, the tribes of Israel. And then we go to the Exodus and the wandering to the promised land with Moses in leadership around 1500. And then you get Joshua that leads in, in the judges. And then we have the united monarchy with Saul and David and Solomon and David who was around 1000 BC. The monarchy, the 
kingdom is split. So we have the north with Israel and the south is Judah. And then there's the Assyrian invasion and the north falls. And then the Babylonian exile, the south falls. But then after the exile, there is a restoration that takes place and the temple is rebuilt around 500 BC. And the final prophecy from Malachi comes in 430. And then there's what is known as the intertestamental period, that period of time between the Old and New Testaments. And we start with the Persians, where the Jews were still allowed to be the Jews. But then Alexander the Greek comes. Alexander the Great and the Greek invasion, the Hellenistic period. And there is, under the Hellenistic period, the two areas, the Ptolemies, and that pressure to become Greek, and then the Seleucids, where Judaism is prohibited, and we get the Maccabean Revolt. And then comes the Hasmonean period, where Judah, now being called Judea in Greek, is independent, but then Rome takes control. And that Roman period that begins in 63 BC, and that takes us to King Herod, who is known as Herod the Great, but who is really Herod the Not-So-Great. He was appointed to be king over Judea by the Roman Senate, and he began his role in 37 BC. He is called Herod the Great because during his 40-year reign, he builds loads of magnificent buildings, theaters and amphitheaters, monuments, pagan altars, fortresses, and he commissioned the major remodeling of the temple in Jerusalem. However, he is clearly Herod the not-so-great because he was ruthless, murdered his own wife, three sons, his mother-in-law, brother-in-law, uncle, and so many others, including the murder of the babies in Bethlehem that we read about in Matthew chapter 2. Herod the not-so-great is the first foreign king of Israel thrust upon Israel by Rome. And in this, we see a fulfillment of what was actually said in Genesis 49.10. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his, referring to the Messiah that would ultimately come. And so rule has been taken from the Jews, from the tribe of Judah, Judah being moved out of existence, and all that's left is the Sanhedrin. And in revenge, Herod the not-so-great slaughters almost the entire Davidic line. But we know that the Lord has promised that the Davidic line to the Davidic throne will continue. There's promises throughout from Psalm 89, I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. And Amos 9 continues the guarantee, in that day I will restore David's fallen tent, I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be. And Isaiah 11, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from his roots a branch will bear fruit. And so at the birth of Christ, the Davidic line was almost completely destroyed. All rule had been removed from the Jews. And so Matthew, who writes to the Jews, His gospel account begins with Jesus' ancestry, showing how Jesus truly is connected to the Davidic line. And Luke does the same thing, beginning with the testimony about Jesus' public ministry that comes a couple chapters later. Now, all of that is that historical background. It takes us to Zechariah the priest, beginning the second half of verse 5. 
In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. In other words, both Zechariah and Elizabeth are of priestly descent. And not just priestly descent, but Aaron, the first high priest. Therefore, any children that they would have would be purebred priests. But not only are they of priestly ancestry, look at what is said about them in verse 6. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and regulations blamelessly. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that they were perfect. You know, we often use that phrase, nobody's perfect, I think, as a, as a cop-out. It's kind of like, uh, you know, we try and ignore our sin or the sins of others by saying, well, nobody's perfect. That's a bit of a, a cop-out. Of course, nobody's perfect, but we still seek to observe the Lord's commands and regulations perfectly. If we falter, we repent, seek forgiveness, and continue. It's like when you go on a, on a diet and then you break the diet, you eat a little bit more than you should. You eat that thing and you go, well, you know what? I've already blown the diet. I might as well just eat the whole box now, right? Just really throw it all. But the key is to say you falter and you stop and then you move forward. If we sin, we stop and we repent and then move forward by God's grace. Now, the other aspect of what is being said of Zechariah and Elizabeth is that they didn't just perform the outward works of the law, but their outward works flowed from the inward working of the Spirit in their hearts. They observed the Lord's commandments from a whole heart. Compare that to the kinds of hypocrisy that we often talk about in the church. They have on the one side those who go to church on Sunday but don't do it with a whole heart, failing to worship the Lord wholeheartedly, or they go to church on Sunday but live as pagans the rest of the week. But the other side of that hypocrisy is those that say, well, I believe in God, but have nothing to do with the church of Jesus Christ. There's no outward evidence of a real relationship with Christ. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth remind us that we are to have the whole heart, to have both faithful hearts that produce faithful works. And so verse 7 then tells us something that's shocking in the midst of that. They had no children because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well along in years. And so here you have two people who are completely faithful, and yet they are living with the disgrace of being childless. Keep in mind that in that culture, bearing children was understood to be the blessing of God. The inability then to bear children was a sign that you were being punished by God for some reason. Undoubtedly, people would have talked about them behind their backs, speculating about what hidden sins were causing divine displeasure with them. I wonder about that and wonder how we sometimes do that in our life. Sometimes that we think that God is mad at us because we are not experiencing the blessing that we desire. We might even hear people say, why would God give cancer to that person? They're such a good person. Or why would God let that person die? They were such a good Christian. Cancer is not a particular punishment, a particular curse of God. An untimely death is not divine punishment. Sometimes bad things happen because we live in a fallen world. A person isn't killed by a drunk driver because of divine punishment. They are killed because someone drank and then got behind the wheel of a car. In this gospel age, 
We apply Christ's redemption to every aspect of life and existence, eliminating drunk driving, eliminating cancer, our applications of redemption. And God can use even the worst of events to glorify himself. Zechariah and Elizabeth are proof of this. For how many years had they prayed for a child, and yet they remained childless? And now here they are old, don't know exactly how old, but certainly past the age of childbearing. And sometimes God doesn't answer our prayer in the way we think he should because he has something better in mind. Verses 8 through 10 set up that climactic moment. And what we need to understand in those verses is that rather than there being a lack of priests, there was such an overabundance of priests that they really only had to work one week every six months. And you guys all give me a hard time about working just one day a week. So now one of the, one of the duties then of the priestly division when it was their week to serve was to light the incense in the morning and again in the evening as the people offered up their prayers. And so the incense went up as the people offered up their prayers. And there were lots of priests in every division. It was the greatest of honors to be the one to light the incense on the altar in front of the most holy place. And they would cast lots, sort of rolling the dice, to determine who would be the one to have this honor. And you could easily serve as a priest your entire life and never have the lot fall on you, allowing you to light that incense. And so this really was a once-in-a-lifetime moment for Zechariah. As the people gather outside to pray, Zechariah would enter into the holy place, and the rest of the priests would withdraw and leave him alone to present the offering. And in this way, the priests were the mediators between the people and the Lord. The offering was made, the incense was lit, the sweet fragrance floating up as the people offered up their prayers. And so we talk about Jesus as the final priest, our mediator. We pray in Jesus' name for a reason. Jesus offers himself. His own blood is on the altar. We have the great pleasure of going before God in prayer because Jesus offered himself. And God hears our prayers because of Jesus. And if we really thought about what was happening every time we prayed, we would never get sidetracked, distracted, or fall asleep when we pray. That once-in-a-lifetime moment is happening every time we pray because we pray in Jesus' name and Jesus himself intercedes for us. And that brings us to verse 11, when it happens. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. You think? (laughs) Having an angel appear was not a standard occurrence. We sometimes forget this because as we read the Bible, it seems like there was appearances and visions and dreams happening all the time. But we need to remember that as we read the scriptures, we're reading very much a condensed history, right? It's the recording of God's revelations over the course of hundreds and thousands of years. At the time of Zechariah, there had not been a revelation from God in some 400 years. So a good reason for Zechariah to be startled and gripped with fear. And verse 13 begins this revelation of God from the angelic messenger that there is the promise of the birth of John the Baptist, the precursor 
to the Lord himself coming. And so the first thing the angel says is, do not be afraid. There's something interesting in biblical revelations. When God or an angelic messenger is sent by God, people are always gripped with fear. If the person is righteous, they are told, do not be afraid. If they are reprobate, God essentially says, you ought to be afraid. The angelic messenger goes on to tell Zechariah that his prayer has been answered. Now, it's highly unlikely that Zechariah was in at the altar praying for himself. He was there fulfilling his priestly duty. He was not praying about being childless. He was there praying on behalf of the people of Israel. He was Zechariah the priest praying for the people of God. And yet God answers the particular prayer of redemption for Israel by also answering Zechariah's long-standing prayer for a child. Two quick notes of application on that. One is that this should remind us that we ought to pray not only for our personal wants, but we should always be praying for the church. Pray for the church, for the people of God, and for the world. And the second, keep in mind that the world doesn't revolve around our personal wants. We often treat God like Santa Claus, reading to him our Christmas wish list. You heard the story about uh, the little boy who was praying while his grandmother came to visit. And at the top of his voice, he started to pray, Dear God, please give me a bicycle and a toolbox. And, a... and then his brother interrupted him and said, Why are you praying so loud? God isn't deaf. And the boy said, Well, I know God isn't deaf, but Grandma is. Verses 14 to 17 show us what an answer to prayer this child would be. He will be a blessing to you and to many others. He will be like the one who takes the Nazarite vow. But moreover, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Something that is said of no other person in all of Scripture. And then there's something really important to see in this. The key figures in the Old Testament were those who bring a military victory to Israel. But John's birth will not mean conquest for Israel, but it will involve bringing people back to God. When we pray for the church, what is it that we pray for? Do we simply pray for victory or do we pray for faithfulness? John's ministry was to turn people's hearts back to God, to make the people ready for the coming of Jesus. Now, from that, verse 18 would seem to be a legitimate question. Zechariah may have just been afraid he had inhaled too much incense and he's seeing visions because he's a little loopy in the head, right? How can I be sure of this? Have you ever asked a question and as soon as you ask the question, you realize you shouldn't have? You ask that question, you just want to take it right back as soon as you did it. And I kind of wonder if Zechariah asked this question and thought, yeah, I shouldn't have asked that. He's standing in the presence of this angelic messenger. And you sort of picture the angelic messenger sort of getting sort of puffed up, like, you talking to me? You know, I am Gabriel, sent by God. There's only two angels who are named in scripture, Gabriel and Michael. Zechariah asks for a sign, and he's going to get a sign. I am Gabriel, and I stand in God's presence. And then the second sign is that he will be made mute until John is born. 
these signs, and that latter being a sign for Zechariah's doubting, demonstrate that God's word is true and should be believed. Zechariah is rendered speechless because he stands in the presence of God and is receiving the revelation from God. There is the sense as we stand in God's presence, as we sit now in God's presence, when we come before the Lord's word and we read God's word, the revelation of God that it should render us speechless from time to time when we are in awe of what it is that we are experiencing. And so we read that the people, meanwhile, are standing outside waiting for Zachariah to come out. He's supposed to then pronounce that ironic blessing, right? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. But instead, as he comes out, he is unable to speak. Rather than presenting a verbal blessing, there is, in fact, a greater blessing that is coming. Zechariah returns home, and Elizabeth, like Sarah in her old age, becomes pregnant and rejoices that God has taken away her disgrace and that God will take away the disgrace of his people. Christmas is coming. We celebrate that God has come and has taken away our disgrace through the coming of his son, our Savior. Now, next week, we're going to look at Elizabeth and the birth of John the Baptist. But for now, in keeping a focus on Zechariah, we want to move forward. We've gone from Zechariah the priest, and now we go to Zechariah the singer. And Zechariah's prophetic song in verses 67 to 79. Listen to that song, beginning again at verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And prophesied, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness, and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. We first read that his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. It's a phrase that we're going to see again next week with Elizabeth. Filled with the Holy Spirit, allowing her to speak prophetically to Mary. Real quick, you ready for this week's Latin lesson? The Ave Maria, the Hail Mary, is the first words in Latin of Gabriel's visit to Mary back in Luke 1.28. The Magnificat is the first word in Mary's song, beginning in Luke 1, verse 46, when she sings, my soul glorifies, my soul magnificates, magnifies the Lord. Well, here, Zechariah's first word in verse 68 is benedictus. And so this is often referred to as the benedictus song of Christmas. Benedictus means blessed, or translated in the NIV as praise be. Benedictus, praise be to the God of Israel. And this song is in two parts. Verses 68 through 75 speak prophetically about the work 
of the covenant God. And verses 76 to 79 prophesy specifically about the work of John. And I've written actually that in the margins of my Bible, and it might be helpful to do that yourself. Then in the margin of verses 68 to 75, I've written prophecy about the work of God, and the margin of verses 76 to 79, prophecy about the work of John the Baptist. Prophecy about the work of God, prophecy about the work of John the Baptist. And so in that first section, verses 68 to 75, the prophecy about the work of God, notice the focus on redemption and salvation, which is through Christ the Lord, Christ alone. The Lord has come. He's redeemed his people. He has raised up the horn of salvation, the strength of salvation. And verse 72, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Let's take a minute and remember about the word remember. Remember doesn't mean a memory thing. It's not that God had forgotten about the covenant and he's like, oh, I forgot all about that. I remember, I had this covenant, right? It's not like, oh, I need to pick up the dry cleaning too. In the Bible, remember is not a memory word. Remember is a covenant word. In communion, we eat the bread and drink the cup in remembrance of Christ. This doesn't mean that we just bring him back to our memory, but it is in covenant remembrance. We eat and drink in covenant with Christ. We are covered by the covenant of grace. We receive Christ in all his benefits in the sacred supper of the covenant of grace. And so remember is a covenant word. And so the second section, verses 76 to 79, the prophecy about the work of John the Baptist. We get the fulfillment of Isaiah 40. A voice of one calling, in the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight the wilderness, a highway for our God. You know, when God works, he isn't trying to impress us, but to make an impression on us. The relatives and neighbors of Zechariah and Elizabeth were amazed at what God had done in bringing about this birth. But for how long? By the time John began his public ministry, how many people were still watching John? How many were still listening to him? How many remembered the revelation about his birth? Many of them celebrated John's birth the way many celebrate Christmas. Those who talk about Jesus a bit more than usual this time of year. But then that fades away and we go back to the business as usual. The birth of Christ is something that we celebrate not just for a day or a week or a month or even for a season. The birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, the coming of Christ is something to celebrate and acknowledge every day. It's something that has made a permanent change in us and makes a permanent change in the world. We need to listen to Jesus every day. Our ongoing study of God's word, applying his truth to our life and all of life. Just as many make New Year's resolutions and break them within the first couple of days or I suppose a couple of weeks for those who are truly diligent, and then forget all about them. So comes the singing and celebrating of the amazing birth of Messiah, but within a couple of weeks, we all forget about Jesus. In John Calvin's commentary on this passage, he says this, God does not amuse us with his miracles, but arouses the senses of men, which he perceives to be in a dormant state. Well, the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ, preceded by the miraculous announcement about the birth of John the Baptist, amuse us for a season or arouse us from a dormant state. Don't let this holy day become just a holiday. 
And more important, may the rest of our days be lived out as holy days. May the truth set us free. Amen.